Greeny with Mike Greenberg, the podcast. All right, Greeny with you, presented by Progressive Insurance. We come to you live from the seaport, brought to you by Gray Goose with the assembled members of the hashtag crew around me. Nuno's here, Bubba's here, Hembo's here. We got ourselves onto an interesting conversation, and I, I want to take it to its conclusion here, and it's about Kevin Durant. So the Brooklyn Nets gave up 153 points in a game last night against Sacramento that did not go to overtime. I mean, they're just, it's ridiculous what has become of them. And Charles Barkley on TV last night said that this had been a wasted four years for, quote, those guys. And I said that my only slight disagreement with Charles is that I don't think it's been a waste, really, of anybody except for Durant. Because Durant is the only one who has a permanent legacy. Kyrie's legacy is a complicated one. And it is about a lot of things that have nothing to do with basketball. And you are entitled to think whatever you want about him. But Kyrie Irving, while I think he may have had the talent to, is definitely not going to be remembered amongst the handful of greatest players of all time. When we do the the 75 greatest players or whatever it is, Kyrie Irving's name is not going to be on that list because he is at this point better known for all the reasons he didn't play than the reasons that he did. Ben Simmons has gone from being a player who seemed to have the potential to be the next great one to a player who now is just kind of barely hanging on. He was brought to Brooklyn as a defensive specialist and they gave up 153 points last night. So how's that working out? Durant is one of the greatest players that ever lived. And so I went back and I looked ESPN. We had him ranked 12th on the all-time list, which sounds about right. And I think if you were to give the first sentence of the, I don't want to use the word obituary because most of these people I'm about to talk about are still alive, and I, I don't I don't like even speaking that aloud. So let's say Hall of Fame plaque. The, the first sentence of their Hall of Fame plaque. Number one on our list is Michael Jordan, widely regarded as the greatest player of all time. He was the central figure in a dynasty in which the Bulls won six championships in eight years. Right? Easy. Easy. LeBron James, considered by many to be the greatest all-around player that ever lived, with a skill set at his size that perhaps we had the league had never seen before, led multiple teams to championships, the only player ever to be named Finals MVP for three different franchises, and oh, by the way, still beloved in all of those places. Candidly, L.A. might be the place he is the least beloved, but they will love him in Cleveland until the end of time, and they will love him in Miami for what he did there. The Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is three. Perhaps the greatest player, the most accomplished basketball player that ever lived, the NBA's all-time leading scorer, six-time MVP, greatest college player ever lived, greatest high school player that ever lived, led the Lakers to a dynasty in the 1980s. Number four, we have Magic Johnson, similar. I'm not going to go through all of these because you get the point. Wilt Chamberlain, Bill Russell, Larry Bird, Tim Duncan, Oscar Robertson, Kobe, 11 is Shaq, and 12 is KD. What's the first sentence? What's the first thing you will say? If Kevin Durant's career ended right now, he would be a first ballot Hall of Famer and he would be one of the greatest players that ever lived. Of that, there is no debate. No one here is having a conversation that does not take that as a given. But after we take that as a given, what is the first thing we say of him? Because listen to the write-up that we have. Kevin Pelton wrote this. And what he wrote is, Durant's move to the Warriors in 2016 dramatically shifted the league's balance of power. Adding the former MVP to a team that had gone 73-9 and before the year before created arguably the greatest team in NBA history with Durant shining brightest against LeBron James in the NBA Finals to win Finals MVP back-to-back years. That's what it writes about. 
It writes about the move he made from Oklahoma City to Golden State that candidly, I think more than 50% of basketball fans look down on. I've always been of the position that he was well within his rights to do whatever he wanted. I hate that he did it, and I hate it for the league, or hated it for the league, because I think it ruined basketball as we knew it for several years, because they were a cheat code. They were just unfairly good. I don't blame him for that, though. The rules suggested he could do it, and if he wanted to go do it, who am I to say he shouldn't? But my point is, the most notable thing we can say about his time in Oklahoma City, including the MVP and all the points he scored and all the games they won, was that the, depart- the, the, the circumstances of his departure left an extremely bad taste in the mouths of everyone that he left behind, the fans, the organization, and everybody else. And then his arrival in Golden State, while it did wind up leading to two championships, it didn't elevate his greatness to anywhere near the way that almost every other Immortals championships elevate their greatness. Michael, his championships. LeBron, his championships, the one in Cleveland in particular. Giannis, his championship. Kevin Durant. Mm. Is that the first thing you're going to say about him? Oh, they won two titles in Golden State. I don't think so. That team won 73 games without him. In some ways, Draymond Green kicking uh, uh, someone in the ding-ding. Who'd he kick? I forget. Whoever he kicked on Cleveland in the ding-ding that got him suspended for Game 5 of the NBA Finals winds up in many ways biting Durant in the butt. Because if that didn't happen, the the Warriors win the championship in five that year. They're they're NBA champions uh, back-to-back. They've won 73 games the year before. There's no way they break up that team and go bring in Durant. There's no way they move. Not that they had to break up their big three, but there's no way that move gets made. So in many ways, I think that winds up, I think it actually, in some ways, at least in the eyes of some, diminishes Durant's legacy. So let me ask you the question again. Go ahead. This is a build a statue kind of player. Right. Where are you building the statue? No, no there's no statue. There's no statue, right? Well, I mean, if they're going to build the statue, it's going to be in Oklahoma City. That's the only place they're going to... Or in Austin, Texas. <laughs> yeah, for the, for the one year he spent there. Yeah, and the one NCAA tournament game that they won. And, and that's exactly right. They didn't get out of the first weekend. Mm-hmm. That's the point. Like, all the things that we usually associate with the all-time greats generally have not happened for him. And I hate this conversation because it sounds like we're diminishing him. And he's so good. And I think his heart is, for the most part, in the right place and almost always has been. Like, he's gotten things wrong like everyone else has gotten things wrong. LeBron got things wrong. Michael got things wrong. Everybody gets things wrong. But by and large, you cut everybody down to their core. They're either good or they're bad. He's good. I think Durant is a good guy. I think he's a good man. I think he's a good person. I think he's a good... uh, I I think he's... He he is... His uh, legacy should be steeped in goodness, not in badness. But the missteps along the way, I think, have undone so much of a reputation that should otherwise be so different. Remember when he won the MVP? Remember when he was showing up at the, at the news conferences at the NBA Finals with a backpack? My wife loved him. My wife was like, oh, my God, that's so adorable. He's got a backpack, and it's great. And then he wins the MVP, and he said his mom is the real MVP. That was him. You know the term, the real MVP? That started with Kevin Durant. He was beloved. He wasn't beliked. He was beloved. And then he left after they lost. And he went to sign with the team that beat him. When he should have had, they had Golden State dead to rights. 
and he didn't play well, and they didn't win, and he went. I'm not. Re- there's no reason to adjudicate all this again. You all remember what happened. But the point is, his legacy is complicated. So there's no statue in Golden State. You're going to build a statue to three other people from this time. You're going to build a statue to uh, uh, um, uh, the guy who was the MVP of the first one. His name just jumped out of Iguodala. my head. To, uh, to Andre Iguodala before you're going to build it to Durant, right? <laughs> I mean, he's been there for all of it. What's the first line of the plaque then? Is it this guy scored a lot of points? Yes. That's the, the first line. line on the plaque is going to be widely considered to be one of the greatest scorers in NBA history. He finished his career with X number of thousands of points, two-time NBA Finals MVP. I mean, that's what it's going to say on the plaque. Eh. But, 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 but eh. it's a complicated legacy. He, he, he still has time to rewrite it. The last chapter has not been written. And the last chapter, I mean, look at a lot of these guys. The last chapter is sometimes the most important. I think at minimum they should include, though, yeah, one of the greatest scorers of all time, also probably the most sensitive person on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) That's got to be included because that's what I I think of him, honestly. When I think of him, I think of probably, yeah, maybe the greatest scorer of recent memory, maybe you can argue of all time, but also in the new era of social media, probably the most sensitive person who responds to every single person ever. And that's what I think of. Well, look, you're, you're singing my song there. I have tried so hard for so long. Kevin Durant is a person who does not need to listen to my opinion. But he seems to concern himself with the opinions of random strangers constantly because he is constantly reacting to them on social media. And so I have said a million times, that is so beneath him. He's Kevin freaking Durant. Why are you worried about what every Tom, Dick, and Harry has to say about you on Twitter? He shouldn't be worried about what I say. He shouldn't be worried about what anyone in the media says. He's way better than that. But he doesn't seem to get that for whatever reason. And that probably has driven a lot of the... Uh, if you want to call them missteps, the missteps he has taken. All right, that's another good example of how that wasn't a place we planned to go today, certainly not to that extent, uh, but it felt worth the trip. Uh, As we continue, I I will ask what I think could become the question of the day. Have we seen the end of one very high-profile player? Plus, a different NFL player said something I absolutely hate. We'll get to all of that as we roll along. You're listening to Greeny on ESPN Radio. Greeny, the podcast. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back because with ebay motors you're burning rubber not cash with all the parts you need at the prices you want it's easy to turn your car into the mvp and bring home that win keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply it's demon time on prize picks where you can now win up to 100 times your money that's right 100 100 times times your money. money 
With as little as four correct picks, you can turn $10 into $1,000. Demons and Goblins are the newest and most exciting way to play at prize picks. Squares marked with red demons or green goblins get you different payouts. And as always, prize picks is really simple to play. You can make your picks and submit your entry in less than 60 seconds. They even offer injury insurance so that your entries stay in play even if one of your players gets injured. Quick withdrawals, easy gameplay, and an enormous selection of players and stat types are what make prize picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Go to prizepicks.com slash Greenberg and use code Greenberg for a first deposit match up to $100. That's prizepicks.com slash Greenberg, code Greenberg, for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize picks. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. Reggie White, who's a defensive end for the Green Bay Packers, says that the firebombing of his church in Knoxville, Tennessee this week was the work of racists who may have been trying to hurt him. First there was one fire, then there was another, then there was another. It wasn't just Reggie's church that burnt down. Hundreds of churches burned in the 90s. I think we have a major problem in our country that we don't want to admit, and that has to do with racism. Was this 1996 or 1956? 30 for 30 podcast and Antscape presents Through the Flames. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. All right, greeting with you here on ESPN Radio, presented by Progressive Insurance. So much interesting stuff in the program today. So much good football to get to, a bunch of Kevin Durant conversation. But now it's time for the question of the day. You ask these questions. Greeny's question of the day. Have we seen the last of Carson Wentz? I think it's a legitimate question. Ron Rivera was talking the other day about how he hasn't made up his mind yet what he's going to do when Wentz is healthy enough to play, which is soon, maybe even almost now. Taylor Heineke has been playing pretty well. They win a big game on Monday night against Philly. And the question is, does Wentz go back on the field for Washington? I think it's leaning toward the answer being no. I think Ron Rivera is going to keep Taylor Heineke out there for the rest of the season. And so it then begs the question, is this the end of the road for Carson Wentz? I have to be honest with you. I thought last year was when everything went as badly as it did in Indianapolis. I remember many times last year saying, if not there, then when? Or if not then, then when? If not there, then where? Is it ever going to work out for Wentz if it didn't work out in Indy with Frank Reich and all the rest of that? And obviously it didn't. So a player whose career began with such promise. Like, it's not just where he was drafted, but it's how well he played as a rookie. I remember vividly, and I don't, well, it's whatever year he was drafted, After his rookie year, Mike and I were at the Super Bowl doing our regular Super Bowl shows, and he came through there selling a product. I don't remember what it was, but like everyone else, you know, he's got a product, and he came and does, you know, a 15-minute interview and gets to plug his product, as we all do at the Super Bowl every single year. And I remember the buzz around Carson Wentz, like, this is the next one. This is going to be the next NFL star quarterback. Philly has got their guy, and they're going to be great. Who would have ever imagined, if you had said to me, sitting there that day, I want to say we were in Houston. I think that's where the game was. But it doesn't make any difference where we were. But if you had said to me, sitting there that day, the remainder of Carson Wentz's career is going to consist of his team winning the Super Bowl without him and then him getting benched for a second-round pick and then sent to Indianapolis and it falling apart completely around there and then going to Washington and him not being able to beat out Taylor Heineke when healthy and then be a backup for the rest of his life, which I think right now is his, is, is, is sort of his lot in all of this. I would never have believed you. What a startling career arc that is. 
And Hembo, I know you're smiling because for some reason, all of you in Philly seem to have developed this real hatred for the guy that I don't fully understand. I wouldn't say that the feeling is hatred, but the feeling is we told you this was the case like two years ago. I, I don't view Carson Wentz as being some sort of great what if. I think there are a couple of theories here. One, the Eagles winning the Super Bowl without him just broke him. It just broke them in. He obviously didn't have the mental acuity to get through that. Once the Eagles drafted, drafted Jalen Hurts, he totally shut down. He stopped talking to the coaches. Like there, there's, there's a layer beneath the iceberg for Carson Wentz that we don't know about publicly. But when you listen to all of coaches and what teammates say about him, even publicly, there is something there that, don't meet, that does not meet the eye. And ultimately, I think that, more than his performance, actually, is what pushes him out of the league. Is it, is it over? I mean, have we seen Nuno in a meaningful way? Carson Wentz is a person who will be able to make a living as a backup quarterback in the NFL for a decade if he wants to. Right. Um, but that certainly wasn't where I think he would have imagined him himself going or his career taking him. Nuno, have we seen the last of Carson Wentz as a starting quarterback in the NFL? Oh, without a doubt. And I think the bigger question is if I'm Wentz at about to be 30, you've made a boatload of money. Do you just, do you want that job? Like, do you want to be a backup in, you know, in Houston and, and kind of hope that the guy in front of you gets hurt? Or do you just like say, screw it and just walk away? I think that's a good question, and it is the, the only way we can answer it is we have no idea. How much money do you think Carson Wentz has earned in his career? I mean, in a, how much has he earned or how much has he made? Those are two very different things. Um, how much has he made? Uh, he got the huge contract there, right? They gave him the contract because he seemed so put off by Foles winning. The, right, right? Yes. Nick Foles won the Super Bowl, and they gave Carson Wentz a huge contract as a result. And then of the Eagles drafted Jalen Hurts less than a year later, which told us everything we needed to know about the guy. And yet they still gave him the contract. But, yes, but something happened between the time they did so from the time then to when they drafted Jalen Hurts. That's all. That's, that's, that period of time changed everything for Carson Wentz. I'm going to guess that he is, well, he's made over $100 million, right? He's $128 million in his yeah, career. Yeah. Nuno's right. He can hang it up and, and you know, go hunting in North Dakota for the But next you want years. to talk about fickle fans and, and Hembo and what we were talking about earlier last hour about Bill Belichick. Carson Wentz is the reason that the, the Eagles, you know, ended a drought, that that horrendous fan base won a championship. And they've, dis, they've destroyed him. Like, they want nothing to do with him. Hembo laughs at his misery. Maybe that's a Hembo thing because he's just a bad person. But Hembo, <laughs> like, this poor guy, like, like, he can't get it right. And Hembo just takes so much joy in it. And so, and this is a guy who just, you know, won a championship because of him. Like, he was put the, that team in that position. And yet, like, we're done with him. So don't tell me that if Belichick and the Patriots aren't Super Bowl contenders, that those fan base won't be like, get rid of this guy. I I have to tell you something that's going to make this even worse. Hembo, in in, in an admirable moment of (laughs) self-flagellation, just handed me his phone where he has pulled up a photo of himself on the Mike and Mike set taking a picture with Carson Wentz <laughs> the day that Wentz, the day I'm talking about, the day that Wentz came and did the interview with us, Hembo, the Eagle fan, took the opportunity to go running over to him and as he was, I'm assuming, finishing his spot with us saying, oh, mm-hmm. hey, Carson, uh, my name's Paul. I'm, a, I'm a one of the, I work on the show here and, uh, and I'm a huge Eagle fan. Can right. I take a picture? And the two of you took a picture. A, your haircut is exactly the same. Like your hair looks, you have not changed a 
bit. I mean, <laughs> your, your haircut is literally identical to what it was. But B, it is an indication that that Hembo, I mean, excuse me, that Nuno is right. How that so? You loved this guy, loved him, and you went from loving him to falling so far out of love. It's one thing to say, well, he didn't turn out to be as good as we thought. I didn't change. He ch- he changed. How did he change? Well, because I mean, early on in the career, like you said, very promising. Built towards the Super Bowl. Wait, I saw right? the play change. I saw him go from playing really well to not playing really well. Uh-huh. But that lots of players have gone from playing really well to not playing really well. The, the, the fan base that they leave in, mm-hmm. the, the, in the wake doesn't take that kind of pleasure, that kind of joy in their misery. Are you saying that I'm, un, I'm not allowed to modify my opinion about a player? Based no, you upon haven't modified your opinion about the player. Everyone can see. Everyone's opinion on the player has changed. Right. No one is sitting and watching him saying Carson Wentz is going to be the next great quarterback in the NFL. Right. We can all see that's not happening. But we are not all thinking, oh my goodness, how great is this? The two other teams have been ruined by him and it is miserable and he seems upset and you are you are you are li- figuratively licking your chops I in joy I mean, wasn't it a, cu- a couple weekends ago whenever it was like the eagles were playing and the phillies were playing and then the commanders were playing you said the best thing that would have happened was not the phillies winning a world series game not the eagles staying undefeated it was the, the commanders losing right with wentz that's right. insane that's that, right that's disturbing i'm a vengeful it wasn't the phillies winning a world series game person that hate watches carson wentz play that's like, sickening like orlowski who used to defend him obviously stopped defending him because of his play you just hate the guy Can for be whatever honest? reason yeah. you know I almost lost my friendship with Dan Orlovsky over Carson Wentz. <laughs> How so? <laughs> because every week on the show, he would ask me to equip him with reasons why he was playing better than what met the eye, and mm-hmm. it became increasingly difficult for me to do so. We had something of a standoff there. Like It became very difficult for me to actually do my job. You mean emotionally, or you couldn't find them? No, emotionally. I, could, I, mean, I can find any number that, that is out there that exists. But, but, it, but, 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 but were there numbers that suggested that? I mean, yes, but you had to sort of tie yourself into a pretzel to find them, which I could do, but it was very difficult emotionally for me to do. And so so. Dan was disgusted with you. And I was disgusted with him. Well, I will give Hembo this much credit. When things started going bad in Philly, we used to do these things. We we still could on Get Up. Haven't done one in a while that we called um, that we called down barrels where you're literally looking right down at the camera. And I deliver like a 90 second to two minute sort of verbal essay on a topic or, on, or, or, or you know, one or another thing. And, and, and uh, Hembo does the research for them. And we, we've had great success with them. And you pitched me one early in the going saying the problem in Philly is the quarterback. Right. And that was before anyone else was saying it. So you, to, to your credit, you were way ahead of this. It was in the fall of 2020, I think, like way before people were ready to move on from Carson Wentz, a long time before the Eagles were willing to move on from him, but it was the writing was on the wall, and, and we did this a couple weeks ago. There's now four examples of Carson Wentz's team getting better after he got hurt, dating back to college. So I think he'll be remembered as sort of a great what if. When I think in reality, he was pretty much just a product of his surroundings. And in 2017, the year he would have won the MVP had he not gotten hurt, it was the case. The Eagles won the Super Bowl with his backup. Yeah, I mean, and they they the next year they looked better with his backup, right? I mean, mm-hmm. fault they, they they who was the receiver drops a ball in a playoff game yeah. otherwise they win that game. Alshon Jeffrey did. They Alshon had a Sean losing Jeffrey. record with Carson Wentz that year. Uh, and so look, his his legacy is a complicated one. Mm-hmm. I take no joy in it whatsoever. Hembo because he is just a despicable human <laughs> being does. However, coming up next, I'm going to give him a green light. He will try to explain the inexplicable Plus, we'll get Greeny's takes and a whole lot more as we finish up today. Uh, we had a lot to do. Greeny on ESPN Radio. Greeny, the podcast. Death is the only punishment here. 
Now streaming, FX's Shogun. My master asks, what do you seek here? To vanquish our common enemies. Based on the global bestseller by James Clavell. War is coming. The epic saga of war, passion, and power. Let it come. FX's Shogun. Now streaming on Hulu. Green light, green light with Greeny. All right, there's some baseball news out there, and I wanted to give Hembo a quick green light to take us through some of it. I saw managers of the year were announced yesterday. What do we think of that, Hembo? Well, I mean, I wasn't at all surprised by Terry Francona winning in the American League. That seemed to be something of a shoe-in. I was, however, at least a little bit surprised with the decision to give Buck Showalter the manager of the year in the National League. I mean, obviously, the Mets enjoyed a good bit of success this year. They won 101 games, yada, yada, yada. It's obviously only a regular season award, too, so we're not holding against him the collapse against the Padres in the playoffs, nor his decision to examine Joe Musgrove's ears in a moment of terrible judgment. But this was the same Mets team and the same Mets manager that relinquished a 10-and-a-half game lead within their division, am I right? How are we going to give the manager of the year award to that guy? So you're suggesting that, they, that you, when you look back on a season and the performance of a manager, rather than look at it in its totality and say he won 101 games— you want to say it seemed he had the division put to bed in early August or whenever that actually was, and the fact that his team got run down should work against him. Now, I say it that way because for those who don't remember or weren't paying close attention, it's not like the Mets fall apart in the second half of that season. The Atlanta Braves put on one of the great closing kicks in the history of baseball, and knowing you, you'll know these numbers off the top of your head, but I think the Mets... From the time that they opened up that lead, I, I think they still played 500 baseball, the didn't Mets, they? Yeah, the Mets played like a 90-some win, 95-win clip from June 1st on. June 1st is when they held a 10-and-a-half game lead over the Braves. I can acknowledge that the Mets sort of overachieved relative to preseason expectations. And we can even say that Buck Showalter did a good job on balance. But to give him the Manager of the Year award after relinquishing the third largest division lead in the history of the sport to me seems a little bit sideways. Are you only casting aspersions on it because you hate the Mets? Uh, that is a big reason why, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's we what have I Mets think. fans in the room. We have Bubba in Bristol. Like, yeah, I, I mean, Mr. Rich is people. sitting over there. He's a crazy Met fan. I think Brandon is a Met fan too, right? You a Met fan? No, Yankee fan. Okay, my apologies. But Brandon, because he's a Jet fan, sometimes those go together. But Rich over there on the camera is a uh, is a, a crazy Met fan. And so, of course, is Bubba. Bubba, how do you feel? Do you take umbrage at Hembo questioning the Manager of the Year award for our friend Buck? I mean, I'm not surprised. As we just talked about the last segment, this is the person who was happy when Carson Wentz lost a game instead of being pleased that the Phillies won. So he just wants other people to be, you know, sad. So he's, he's just a miserable person. So it, it's... That's the best you got? You're suggesting that the reason that he is opposed to Buck Showalter winning the award is because he wants everyone to be sad? Well, no, he's just, uh, he's, he's just he's, uh, <laughs> angry. He's just, you know, just going to be angry at all May things. May I also say this? I, I'm, I'm not, I just think you look at it, the, going into the season, what were the Mets' expectations? Did anyone f- realistically expect the Mets to have the fourth best record in baseball? Was that expected to have? Because I don't remember anyone saying that. I don't recall people saying, well, I'm pretty sure Buck Showalter's going to go in there and win 101 games and have the fourth best record in baseball. Maybe fourth in the NL East. I don't, I don't remember people saying fourth best record in baseball. So, yes, the collapse thing in the end 
and again, collapse is really a, not the correct word, but the you know not win, not holding on to the lead at the NL East, not ideal. But I, I, I mean, I'm not. I don't really care whether he wins or not. It doesn't really do much for me. Whatever. I thought he did a good job, but I could see them give it to Rob Thompson after what he did. But uh, I, I just think again, it starts with what are the expectations for the year? I, you know, their win total was like 90, so they won you know 10 more games than it was supposed to be. And no, no one, I don't recall anyone before the year saying, well, I'm pretty sure the Mets are going to no, be right. unbelievable this year. The over-under was 88.5. They passed that in game number 141. From June 1st on, the Braves went 78-34, and 34, the Mets 67-44. and 44. But Greeny, I also think that, that Buck Showalter gets a lot of credit for just doing this for the Mets because there is such a low bar to clear. Like, like when they hired him, it was like, do these two things. Manage the team. And don't send any inappropriate pictures of yourself to people that don't want them. Like the the, the bar is so low, so low for, for for the Mets manager. I think Buck gets a lot too way too much credit because of that. So let's analyze what just happened here. You took this opportunity after the Mets had an outstanding season and their manager was named Manager of the Year to bring up the hideously embarrassing episode that took place with a previous manager that had nothing to do with this whatsoever. Was hired by a different two owner ma- two managers ago. I yeah. disagree exactly. I mean, what I'm saying is Buck is the, the delta between Buck and Mickey Calloway is so great that there were brownie points built in for this award. That's what I'm saying. Okay, so I think more than anything else, we've established that Hembo is a disgrace. I mean that. This is just a disgraceful opinion to bring. If you wanted to argue that someone else was deserving of this award, but I didn't even hear you do that. I just heard you suggest that Buck wasn't deserving I'm of the award. I'm more than happy to go. Who there. should have won it? Well, Bubba mentioned my favorite team, Rob Thompson. He took a, a, a burning carcass of the Phillies to the playoffs. Dave Roberts won more games with the Dodgers than they have ever won. They've been playing baseball since 1884. And all of their fans want him fired. And how about Brian Snitker, who overtook a 10-and-a-half game lead in the National League East. To me, there are many good choices. Buck Showalter, not among them. Okay, so, so if you had just said that, we would have had a legitimate conversation. And the Dodgers were, were supposed to have the best record in baseball, and the Braves won the World Series so last year. So to me, it's all about expectations, what you're supposed to have going into the season. And, you and the Mets were up- coming off yeah. three consecutive seasons that were subpar. Buck comes in and immediately changes the entire culture and everything with the team and change everything. Like I said, before the season, the expectations were not, well, I'm pretty sure Buck will win 101 games and we should definitely be in the playoffs. That should definitely be happening. That was not the – the expectations were Dodgers playoffs, Braves playoffs, all those things. That was not the expectations for the Mets. He he happens to be right. In this case, Bubba happens to be right and Hembo happens to be completely wrong. Now, the real reason – I knew you were going to say that and and I wanted you to do it because it is so – just absolutely shameless. <laughs> but the real reason I wanted to do a green light today is because I wanted to play some of Theo. Theo Epstein is now an MLB consultant. And he, of course, is a god in both Boston and Chicago for having snapped, uh, brought around the, the, the end, the conclusion of the two most famous losing streaks in the history of American sports. Uh, the Red Sox, who waited 86 years to win a World Series, and the Cubs, who waited 108 to do the same, and Theo Epstein was the architect of both of those. He is the, my goodness, he's the Frank Lloyd Wright of Major League Baseball. But the most important thing that maybe he'll ever do for the sport is what he's doing now. He is sort of at the right hand of the commissioner, Rob Manfred, trying to help to tailor, trying to think of the right words here, the sport of baseball. Here's the problem the sport of baseball has. 
and we love it on this show, and we, we probably spend more time on baseball than any other national sports talk show in the country because we, we follow it, we love it, and we happen to know it well. Um, so we love the sport. But you can love the sport and also acknowledge that what our society has become, what our culture has become, is the opposite of what baseball is. The things that have always made baseball great are things that, generally speaking, we don't appreciate the way we used to. When I first started covering sports, there was a columnist in Chicago for the Tribune named Bernie Lincecum, was someone who kind of, uh, he didn't take me under his wing, but he was much older and I was much younger and we would talk a lot and I, I really derived a lot of wisdom from him. And he once said to me, Mike, what makes baseball great are all the things that happen in between the action. And that's true. The problem is we don't live in that world anymore. We live in a world now where people expect things instantly where if you don't watch this TikTok for five seconds, they'll never put it on your phone again. My kids grew up watching, what was the thing before TikTok? Vine. Those were six-second videos. We've literally conditioned people in this country and in this world to have an attention span that is six seconds long. Baseball can never compete there. Baseball will never be a TikTok sport. But it's got to do the best it can to continue to evolve what it is, while not leaving behind what makes it special, into something that is going to stand the test of time going forward. That's Theo Epstein's job. That's a hard job. It was kind of hard to explain it, much less to understand how to go about it. Because you have this, this faction of people, the, the traditional fans of the sport, who remain your most important base who are outraged at everything you do. Anytime you change anything, they are outraged. So that's the context in which Theo was working. So he is on, this is Buster's podcast, right? The Baseball Tonight podcast. And Hembo brought my attention to this, and Nuno did a good job cutting up some of the sound bites. So here is Theo Epstein's idea, which is the one that I really liked, Nuno, the one about, is this what the game would be if we were to invent it now? Is that, is that the first one there? It's, it's one, let's just, let's just play it. I'll just play the first one here. He says, teams need to do their part to put the best possible product on the field. I just wanted to, to remind, remind all the GMs that, you know, beyond winning games, we all have an interest in putting the best possible product on the field and that their contributions, because they understand the dynamics between batters and pitchers and incentives and disincentives and, adaptations and, and, and adjustments to those adaptations. They understand it so well, they can play a really important role and have a critical voice in the way things evolve. And that we're not, we understand how important it is to win, how hard it is to develop players, and that these rule changes are not designed to make their lives more difficult, but just to put the best possible product on the field every night. And that's something we all have an interest in. So, so that's really interesting. We have to remember that baseball is a product. It is a game. But what you are watching is the conducting of business going on on your television or on the field in front of you if you're at the ballpark and what must not be lost sight of and i think i don't this might not be the soundbite but you said it to me in the office today didn't he say something like if you were an eight-year-old kid and you were designing the game of baseball how would you design it you wouldn't design it almost any of the ways that it is currently being played yes it would look nothing like the way that it does now 
And that's why Theo Epstein, who built this dragon that he is now slaying, I think is the perfect person to lead baseball into the future. You mentioned the curse of the Bambino, the curse of the Billy Goat. I mean, he extinguished baseball's two greatest curses. And now he has the opportunity to remake the game in some sense and bring baseball, not like into the future in such a way that I think you'll probably, you know, um, the old farts won't like, but take baseball back to what it was like when you were a kid. We need more balls in play. The thing that makes baseball great is the batted ball, the ball in play. It's the foundation of the sport. It's like, there's a reason why when you're playing in the backyard, you have the pitcher throw it up to you, you hit with the, the, the broomstick, and you guys run around like crazy. The, the, the game right now is nothing like it was originally conceived to be. In some sports, analytics have made it more entertaining. In baseball's case, it's made it much less so, and nobody can see that better than Theo Epstein. Yeah, and so I, I give him a lot of credit for trying, and we'll see where they can wind up going. There are certain elements of it. Like, I was actually looking at the numbers yesterday. So I know a lot of Yankee fans were excited they re-signed Anthony Rizzo. He's going to continue to play first base for the Yankees. He's a terrific player. I, I've always really liked Anthony Rizzo. He, of course, was on that Cubs team that broke the curse and everything else. He hit how many home runs last year? 30-something, whatever it was. He hit 30-something home runs. He drove in some number of runs, and he hit 224. 224. When I was a kid, if you hit 224, you were out of the major leagues a year later. 224 is an unacceptable batting average. Now he's an all-star. You're an all-star hitting 224 if you hit 35 home runs. And he's going to be even better next year. Without the shift. Yeah. That's the point. Well, that's good. I mean, th- that, that part of it I like. Mm-hmm. He won't hit into the shift. I mean, the shift drives me crazy, but that's it's a gone. whole... I know that. No, I mean the whole idea that, that, that batters were unable to or unwilling to just hit the other way is frustrating because I grew up in an era where that's... I mean, so go tell Rod Carew. Call up Rod Carew and tell him, I just can't hit it the other way. But I Rod Carew never in, once in his career saw a 100-mile-per-hour fastball. Not once. So what are you saying? That the act of hitting a baseball now has become so much more difficult yes. than it ever was before? There, there are any number of, like the fifth best pitcher out of the bullpen for the Minnesota Twins right now, the, the Cy Young Award would be named after him if he was born 50 years before. Like you have guys now that can do things with baseballs that they would have never dreamed of when you were growing up. Yeah, but that's true in all sports. I mean, I saw, I think it was um, J.J. Reddick said that if, um, if Kyrie Irving were to have played in the 60s, that you know they, they would they would think of him like as as though he came from, he drew, from outer space, right? <laughs> which is obviously true, but it's also completely irrelevant because if you could have been Kyrie Irving in the '60s, then a lot of other people would have been too. And if slapping a baseball the other way was so easy, then everyone would do it now. Everyone would do it now. It's so hard to even make contact with the thing that the analytics say. So just what you're telling me is, the, is is that the primary reason is not what I perceive it to be, which is that everyone is just being instructed that you are to drive the ball in all circumstances, that when you come up, it is more valuable to try and drive the ball, hit home runs, hit line drives, hit extra base hits, and if you strike out, it's okay. That is not the primary reason that guys don't hit in the other way against the shift. That's correct. You're talking about the most skilled hitters in the world not being able to do something. If they could get a single whenever they wanted to the other way, do you know what they would do? Get a single whenever right. they wanted to And then to the shift the would way. have gone away by itself. Mm-hmm. Instead, we had 60,000 of them last year. Okay, so whatever. I, I digressed into a different point. I guess what I'm trying to say is, to the traditionalists out there, because I've been around so long that I know there are a lot of older people who listen to me because uh, you were much younger when we all started this. Give this a chance, man. Don't start getting mad about stuff. Understand why they're doing it. What they're doing makes sense. 
What they're doing is real, meaningful, and valuable. It is necessary for the future of the game. If you want baseball to continue to be something special to the people that will follow us, all of us, then you got to let them do what they're doing here. And I think Theo Epstein's exactly the right person to do it. All right, fun day. I love days where almost nothing we planned is what we wind up doing. It's the best way to do this thing. We'll see you tomorrow on ESPN Radio. Thanks for listening to Greeny the Podcast. You can listen live each weekday morning at 10 Eastern on ESPN Radio or watch the show through the Watch tab on the ESPN app. Also catch Greeny on Get Up weekday mornings at 8 on ESPN and also available wherever you get your podcasts.